business class listeners, you're tuned in to Wisco Weekly. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the new listeners and all you loyal subscribers. I hope the show's benefiting you. I hope if you have been listening for a long time, there's been a lot of different things that we've talked about, we've covered. You know, in this episode, where I'm not going to do an earnings report and er- earnings analysis on this particular episode, but we are going to still talk about finances and the economy. We're still going to talk about a particular current event that's going on in the automotive space. So if this is your first time tuning into the show, I'm your host, Dennis Wisco. I'm doing this show that I want you to tune in for the education and stay for the investments. Anywhere from covering pop culture in the automotive space investment advice, investment strategies, and just hearing and being connected with some other like-minded folks that are interested in some of this stuff because it's getting pretty serious. It's getting pretty serious. All the talk right now is on inflation and where is inflation occurring? What are the symptoms of it? And so in this particular episode, I want to go over with you as the title suggests, inflation from Mary Barra to MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. It's a school of thought that's being talked about more and more these days. It's a bit scary. It's a bit scary. I'm not going to be able to dive into great detail on this particular episode, but it will be something that I will be following because it has very big ramifications. Big ramifications to the point of calling it likened to identity politics. Identity politics and group think is a very, very bad way to organize a society. I hate to leave you on a cliffhanger on that note, but perhaps you know this stuff already. And if you don't, ask me about it and we can talk about it a little bit later. But inflation from Mary Barra to modern monetary theory. Recently in the news, Mary Barra and General Motors came out and said that they are looking to obtain more EV subsidies so that they could sell more EV cars so that it is a, you know, it is better for the environment. That's that's the line of logic and that's how it goes. Well, that's a very tough pill to swallow. And I must say, there's definitely not a lot of criticism that I would have liked and seen on that particular idea from Mary Barra. I feel like you can't say anything about Mary Barra because she's female. But as she being the head of GM advocating for more EV subsidies to GM, 
GM exhausted their $200,000 limit or 200,000 limit of EV subsidies of $7,500. And so with more bolts in production, with some new models coming out, like the Hummer, they're looking to get that back. And it's fairly irresponsible for Mary Barr and GM to take that position. It's definitely a long game that they're playing on this. It's They're definitely playing the chess game. It's not checkers. They're definitely playing it long. But considering what our economy is going through right now, a period of very slow growth, there's not going to be a whole lot of revenue coming into the system. There's not going to be a whole lot of consumer spending at least over the next year, possibly two. One of the reasons for it is that we are dealing with inflation at the moment. And while inflation in a lot of ways is looked at through a increase in prices, I know that inflation at the moment I think is gearing towards 4%, which is much higher than expected. And hopefully the Federal Reserve is trying to taper that down so we can stay at a steady 2% inflation rate. But inflation, as it's typically known as a rising in consumer prices, that's not the full story. And this is some of the things that I tend to get a bit angered about. Because we start to see how, I can tell you, wood, the price of wood has gone up. I hear the prices of Uber and Lyft are going up. You have the shortage of gas or you have that that cyber attack that occurred in the uh, East Coast that has shut down a pipeline. So all of a sudden there's going to be higher gas prices. Mother's Day just occurred and there was something in the media that there was going to be a shortage of flour. So prices were going to go up. You know, all of this are just the symptoms. These are, these are symptoms here, my friends. The real issue that you have to first accept when you look at inflation is an injection of money into the system. And that's exactly what happened over the last year, starting with the CARES Act and then this I don't know, what is it? Is it the CARES Act phase three, phase four? We're now, in our economy, there's been $5 trillion that have been injected. And not to go to anything that is of particular value of products and services. And I'm I'm not going to argue if injecting that much money into the economy is a good or bad thing entirely. I mean, that's $5 trillion is so much money that it's hard to just simply say it is good or it is bad. But definitely when you inject that much money into the system and your focus is on simply higher wages and not anything on the production end, right? There's approximately 8 million jobs that are available as of last month. We have an unemployment rate at 6%, which is actually not that bad. An unemployment rate of 6%, I mean, that's it's much better than I think 
than at least I would have thought around this time. So 6% is not that terrible. The fact that there are 8 million jobs available and those can't be filled, that's a, that's a problem. But we've been focused very much on increased wages that we pump all this money into the system. People get a bigger check. However, if there's no better goods and products in the system, in the marketplace, well, then it's natural that a lot of these businesses, in particular small businesses, are going to increase their prices to make up for shortages in, in the supply chain, make up for lost revenue over in 2020. So yes, prices are going to go. And when they even start to flatten out, they're not going to flatten out to where they were you know, pre-pandemic. And you say, okay, Dennis, well, of course, that's expected. Of course, they're not going to go back down. Well, yeah, they're, they're going back up and they're going to go up at a rate that we will never, that we, well, we have never seen before, witnessed before. We've never pumped in that much money into our economy. And now you're hearing of states having excess budgets. Here in my home state of California, Governor Newsom is talking about extending out an additional unemployment benefit of $600. Why? Because the state has a surplus of money. It's like $600, really, per person? That's what's going to provide, again, this additional stimulus to the economy? The fundamentals of our economy are definitely, they've been broken for some time now, which this will eventually get us to modern monetary theory. I digressed a bit from Mary Barr and GM, but if we look at, again, Mary Barr and GM and their request to extend out the subsidies to GM. There's a couple articles here, one from Jalopnik and Eric Schilling. And Eric towards at the, actually at the very end of this article says that all of this is a bit academic given how pricey EVs are and given that GM's next EVs electric vehicles beyond the bolt are luxury products like the Hummer and the Cadillac. The buyers of those might care about the tax credit, but again, the point of the tax credit should be volume, not helping or hurting any automaker in particular. Let's do this, Biden. On the other side is on the, the truth about cars and Matt Posky. Matt Posky says automakers are going to support handouts and will always try to con elected officials into giving them preferential treatment. It's what multinational company or it's what multinational corporations do. It's getting farcical across the board and the general populace really needs to wake up and smell the nonsense. So these are two particular angles of the GM EV subsidy extension that's on one hand you have an argument that says well they should get it. They should not be cheated out of going to market much quicker than all of these other automakers. So they're, they're, they feel like they're being penalized because they GM met their cap of 200,000 subsidies of $7,500. And so because they are continuing to produce electric vehicles for the betterment of the environment, then they should get a higher, they should get a greater extension in that subsidy. 
The other side is at some point we have to realize that what are these subsidies actually doing? Is it even viable? Right? It's it's not a it's not a question of is it useful or is it practical? Of I think you could make an argument for that. But at some point you have to start asking the question, should we do this? Is it necessary? And this is where we do start to get to the idea of modern monetary theory. Modern monetary theory, in short, is a school of thought that promotes heavy spending from the government. And the way that you pay for this spending is through increasing taxes, and you minimize the tax burden by printing more money so you give more people so that they can pay that tax. Do you see how that vicious circle works out? Modern monetary theory is a subset of of Keynesian economics, and it just puts gas all over Keynesian economics of government spending as a way to stimulate the economy. Modern monetary theory says that we don't ever have to worry about paying back what we borrow. Why? Because we're only borrowing it from our future selves. We're only borrowing it from the Wisco family of 50 years from now, and they're going to be in a much better position than they are now. There's many modern monetary theorists that will say that, well, as long as we make interest payments on the debt, what are the, how much is that interest payment? Annually, it totals close to, kind of you know, fluctuates, I guess, but it's right at about $378 billion, $378 billion every year. We can make those payments every year. That's actually quite easy to do. I mean, I think we take in one and a half to two trillion dollars in federal tax, federal income tax revenue. All right. So $378 billion in the grand scheme of one year is not really that big of a deal. If you actually took the wealth, I looked this up. If you took the wealth of Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, those two gentlemen. Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, if you took their wealth, their entire wealth, right? All the houses, all their uh, shares invested in the companies, their liquid cash, everything. If you took both Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, that totals out to be a little over $300 billion. I think it was 320, 340, something around there. So they could cover one year of, of uh, debt. Of, of interest debt of the federal government. One year. So one of the things about modern monetary theory that is probably the most troubling that I heard someone talk about this, that you know modern monetary theory is nothing to be proscriptive, just descriptive. And that's, that may be accurate at this moment in time, but it's, it's very dangerous. Why is it very dangerous? Because at some point, at some point, you have to ask yourself, are we ever going to repay this debt? And this is where modern monetary theorists kind of win out. 
they would say, why do we need to pay back that debt, right? We're all, we're, our future selves will be paying that back to us. Why do we need to pay that back? Because as long as you have this business card, and as long as you make the minimum payment on that business card, and as long as people accept, businesses accept that business card, then why do we ever need to pay back the debt? And history will show you that through decades and decades, that this has been the case, that the United States and most economies of the world, at least in the Western world, continue to spend their future dollars in order for some sort of gain today. So with modern monetary theory, there is no end in sight. There is no end. Correction, you know what the end is, and this is, this is what can never be fathomed to modern monetary theorists, is what happens when countries do not accept the U.S. dollar? What if our money is no good anymore? What if we cannot buy the same sort of goods and services in other countries because the dollar just doesn't mean anything? It's not even that it's devalued. It doesn't mean anything. Dennis, how can that happen? Cryptocurrency, my friends. Cryptocurrency is going to be the big disruption in monetary policy in the future. We're already seeing it. It's definitely a bubble. Cryptocurrency, definitely very risky investments, but it's kind of like the dot-com craze of the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. You can get in now and you can make some money. You may be able to come out like Roaring Kitty with GME. You may be kind of like the next Roaring Kitty of the cryptocurrency space market marketplace. But cryptocurrency is a decentralized form of currency. And because no one can control it, it is going to be a bit of a wild west out there as it is now. But this is where we can say at some point that the United States dollar is not going to be worth anything because everything is all going to be in a cryptocurrency. And so what happens then? What happens to all that debt? What happens to the trillions of dollars of debt? Hopefully we're still in the trillions. I don't even know what comes after a trillion, to be honest with you. Million billion, trillion, gazillion? I mean, presuming we're still in the trillion-dollar range by the time cryptocurrency takes over, what happens then to that tr these trillions of dollars of money? You basically start over. You hit the reset button and you start over, and that is when you will have more chaos into the system. Because the currency that we have, the currency that we have is no longer going to be a form of cash. It's going to be something, not just cryptocurrency, but it's going to be the things that we have that we can trade and barter with. I think, I think this is one of the areas that we are inevitably going to go down. We might not, we're probably not going to experience that in our lifetime, definitely not our lifetime. But at some point, because we start to get away from the idea of 
classical economics, you know, just simple monetary policy that says that the U.S. dollar, the the yen, the Czech crown, whatever currency it is, this money is used to buy products and services. We're going to be getting away from that. And we will get into things that there is no such thing as cash anymore. There is going to be a different form of a currency. And that currency, sure, crypto is going to be part of it, but I think there's going to also be this almost, I guess this is what social capitalists talk about in terms of currency. It's things like time, knowledge. That's what we start to trade on. But certainly when that happens, I still want to ride business class. I still want to get a boat. Is my knowledge that much that that could that could buy a boat? How? There's no what am I trading? I don't have anything to trade for that. The last thought I want to leave you with though is it's not all bleak. It's not all bleak. Because at the end of the day, with everything that's going on with inflation, where can you still make money? And not just, not just on the crypto end. Forget the crypto end. Although that is one particular area that you can look to make money. You can make some smart investments in. But this takes me back to a gentleman I had on the show, Erez Salik, who's part of an organization called SIT. And SIT is a method of, of thinking. One of the things that Erez would, would tell me is that, Dennis, you need some better thinking tools. I love that, right? Thinking tools. You have to face the fact that over the foreseeable future, economic growth is going to be slow. You're going to have to accept the fact that there's going to be so much money pumped into the system that you're going to have people that have money. You're just not going to have a whole lot of things to buy with that money. There's not going to be a whole lot of goods and services that you may find of value. So what can you do? Where can you look to spend your time, your, your money, your efforts into knowing these are the areas of opportunities in the, in the immediate future? Well, first thing is think about businesses that are innovating legacy businesses. What do I mean by that? If you think about a company like Uber, what did Uber really do? Like Uber had some really good algorithms, right? But they simply took existing assets and turned them into money-making ventures. That's a pretty wild yet small innovation if you come to think about it. A lot of times people think about electric vehicles being so innovative. Electric vehicles have been around for decades and decades, maybe a hundred years. We just didn't have the wherewithal and the knowledge know-how to accelerate it. But then think about a company like Uber that has accelerated in this short amount of time. And that's the whole point of making these investments. Big gains in the shortest amount of time with, you know, at the most minimal risk. 
So where are the business models? Where are the businesses that are making these innovations into things that are already in existence, things that are legacy? So that's one particular thing you want to be on the lookout for or how you want to think about things and moving forward. Because this is kind of like how it was 10 years ago. There's, there's a lot of people, including myself, right? I think I've always just been this way in general, though, and, and that is committed to education and bettering ourselves. Well, that's what a lot of people are doing during this time and during this volatile economic period, lots of inflation, people staying home. And there's quite a lot of people that are looking to make that next step. And so we're, we're grinding and we're, we're in the trenches and we're learning and we're meeting people and we're doing a lot of things so that in the next five to six years, we're going to be much better off than we were now. So as you plan for this next five-year period, think about investing in those businesses that make those small innovations in these legacy systems. The second area that there's an opportunity for you to keep an eye out, call it outsmarting the attorneys. And you're like, what? how do you make money off of that? Well, look, then we look to companies like LegalZoom, right? LegalZoom, where they simply took templated documents, legal documents, and then just added a DocuSign layer onto it, right? And that's that's kind of the world we're going to be living in now. Everything is going to be just transacted through a digital signature. Everything just might be transacted with a verbal commitment over the phone, over a Zoom, looking someone in the eye. You know, that's the rate of transactions that will start to happen. So therefore, of course, you're going to have all these attorneys drop this legal language to protect a company, protect a policy. If you can start to outsmart the attorneys by reviewing existing legal language and looking to protect yourself under that language or making sure that if you do develop a new idea, that the language that you do use for your legal contracts is something that's, I mean, I guess this is really on the long, along the lines of a, a patent or intellectual property, although that's a, almost another separate discussion, an interesting discussion, because I think that is an area that could be pretty dead. I won't get into that too much, but outsmarting the attorneys and figuring out a way to skirt the system or finding a way to double down on the legal system. And an example of doubling down is I think what LegalZoom did and how, how I will describe it, adding a, a DocuSign layer onto it. Everything, the, the entire legal world already functions off of templates. So why not take a template, put it online, add in the personalized information, dig, digital signature, good to go. So those are the two areas that be mindful of, of you know where companies, where you may want to start a business 
innovate legacy businesses and outsmart attorneys. And then there's also the crypto, those three things. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. I'll be back next week talking more about what's going on in the economy. If you're liking the show, please subscribe. Please rate and review the show. I have something coming up for you that I've talked to you all about before. I've mentioned this before, but I'm getting very closer to developing something that where we can, I guess, stay more in touch. We can become more powerful to one another. And that is through a membership program for Wisco Weekly. Stay tuned. That's coming up very, very soon. I can't wait to introduce that to you. As we end every episode, cheers, prost, lachain, kipis, nastravi, salu, kampai, mabu, tupsin, skambe, yamas, nastrovie, vo salute en saudi to the customer experience. Business class listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. If you enjoyed the show, please do provide Wisco Weekly a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll be here again next week. <laughs> <laughs>